Welcome to the Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman, and I'm the managing partner at Federman Capital. We invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech, and before starting the fund, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. And all the opinions expressed on this show, either by guests or me, do not reflect the opinions of Federman Capital. Nothing on the Blockchain VC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. So I have some really amazing interviews coming up. So please make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform you're using. This ensures you get early access to the episodes as soon as they are released. And today I have a really special treat for you guys. Really excited to welcome to the show Tom Walton Pocock, CEO of the Aztec Protocol. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Tom. Yeah, I really like what you guys are working on and curious to learn more about it. But to kick things off, Tom, would love to learn more about your background and how you got into the blockchain space. Sure. Um, so uh, going right the way back, I, I originally studied uh, maths uh, at university. Um, I studied quite a lot of algebra that I never thought would be useful again, but uh, the past year, um, funnily enough, has come, come right back into my life again. Um, and in the meantime, I was I had spent most of my time in the financial services industry. Um, and again, most of that was, was, uh, was in a debt fund. Uh, I was working in London. Um, and we were working in, I guess, what you call the shadow banking industry. Um, so very, very topical, I guess, now in, in, in blockchain. That's interesting. What do you consider shadow banking, Tom, for listeners who might not be familiar with the term? Yeah, okay. So um, it's been quite traditional for a long time for uh, companies to uh, raise money uh, using the bond market. So that's kind of public public capital where, they, uh, where pension funds and individuals uh, can take... Uh, can, can essentially lend money to, to companies, but with a with a publicly tradable security. And the shadow banking uh, system is more about making loans to those companies rather than bonds. And, and the distinction there is that you and I can't really get access to those to those loans. So we can we can buy and sell bonds on exchanges, uh, but we can't make loans to these companies. And and so um, a lot of the lenders that have have have, have sprung up uh, to provide this service. Have really been eating the lunch of the banks. So the banks used to do all the lending. And really what happens now is the company goes to the bank and the bank says, instead of us lending you the money, we've got these big funds in Mayfair or uh, in, uh, in New York or wherever it may be, uh, who will lend you the money uh, directly and we'll just kind of broker the deal. So that's what's meant by the shadow banking industry. It's really uh, where the banks have kind of stepped out of the way, partly for regulatory reasons, partly because companies have more appetite to lend nowadays um, and investors need more yield. Uh, and so uh, that's where the shadow banking industry uh, has come from. And that's what it means. 
Okay, so you went into this space, you started working in shadow banking, then what? So um, I was there for about two and a half, three years. Um, and towards the end of that period, uh, Ethereum uh, had, been, had been running for certainly well over a year. And uh, I realized there was one major piece of uh, the infrastructure missing from the, the loan market, which was uh, a clearinghouse. And it's very, very difficult to provide clearinghouse services to loans in the same way as bonds for various technical reasons. Uh, but Ethereum seemed to offer the possibility of substituting for uh, a bank, which would say, right, if you want to buy a loan uh, from someone else, we'll guarantee that the, that the trade won't fail. And Ethereum had a kind of a technical answer to this to say, well, we'll give you the atomic swap to make sure this trade is going to settle. So we, uh, Zach and I uh, really were initially setting out to build uh, a loan uh, issuance platform with a trading venue, and Ethereum was the engine behind that trading, that trading venue. So it would ensure that all of these trades uh, would be settled. Interesting. So immediately when you heard about Ethereum, you realized the potential it has to bridge that gap. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could say it was a kind of maybe a lack of imagination. I mean, I was looking at the business I was doing and saying, well, look at all these problems it has, not least the fact that when you trade these things, they're taking 30 days to settle. Um, and, you know, I always need to go through the same financial intermediary to guarantee the trade. And that's really expensive. Um, and, and Ethereum just so happened uh, to be waiting there as, a, as an obvious solution to this problem. Makes sense. And then when you started, it was a banking platform, right? Can you talk about Credit Mint and how that evolved to what it is that you're working on right now? Of course, yeah. So we uh, originally built a, uh, this origination platform. And then one of the, the, the early things that we, we realized is, look, if we're going to sell this to financial institutions, first of all, we, we don't want to, um, to, to kind of uh, weaken. We, we want to make sure that uh, when, when a financial uh, institution uses the platform, we want to give them all these great guarantees that we've told them that Ethereum provides, you know, immutability and guarantee of settlement and all these things. Um, and that meant being on the kind of the public version of Ethereum. Um, but of course, then the trouble was everyone could see every trade. Um, and we tried all sorts of solutions to try to make uh, what the banks were doing private, because that's the only conditions under which they would, they would use the platform. Uh, and eventually, uh, my co-founder, Zach Williamson, I came up with this very clever way to um, uh, obscure the balances. So in other words, to make sure that every time a trade was going across the, the platform, the, the amount going across the platform was encrypted. And that was what we called the Aztec protocol originally, which is uh, it's, it's confidential transactions. And maybe later in the podcast, we can speak about the different types of privacy uh, that in the long term users will will need. Um, but what we were doing was this uh, narrower concept of confidential transactions. So I send you, let's say I have $10, uh, I want to send you $7, keep three out of the balance. Each of those numbers, 10, 7, 3, is encrypted. Ethereum is able to say, well, there was no double spend here. It's still able to check all the logic, uh, but it doesn't know what any of these encrypted numbers actually are. Interesting. So you started with a completely different idea, but then you realized actually privacy is something that's really important and there's a need for it. And you started building on kind of on that idea just because you saw the need. I think this is a really interesting lesson for you know the entrepreneurs listening to this. The best entrepreneurs that I see are the ones who are not married to the idea, right? When, and when they get input or feedback 
from users, they realize, hey, you know what? We thought about doing A, but actually there's a big opportunity if we do B and they pivot. And oftentimes, like these are the, you know, the biggest success stories. So it's really interesting to hear your uh, journey so far. So let's talk about Aztec, Tom. What is it? Can you describe what the protocol is? Yes, of course. Uh, so, so what the protocol does, it uses uh, the technical languages. We use uh, things called uh, Bonneboyan signatures. Um, and, and what are Bonneboyan signatures for listeners who might not be familiar? So what this enables is um, normally with, a, let's say, an ERC-20 token, a, a normal token that we're all, we're all familiar with on, on Ethereum, uh, all of the numbers uh, in any transaction that we do are visible. And that's very ob- it's obviously very important because Ethereum needs to, as I say, if I've got 10, I want to send you seven, keep three. Ethereum needs to know that the seven that you receive and the three uh, that I'm retaining is the same as the 10 that I started with. And if it doesn't, then it, it's not really doing, any, doing us any favors. It's not doing any work for us at all. Um, and what these Bonneboyen signatures allow us to do uh, is to uh, be able to, to, to give Ethereum an encrypted version of these numbers that are not like a normal type of encryption where you can't really do any logic on encrypted data. So, you know, when I send, uh, let's say, uh, I communicate with, an, with, a, with a website using SSL or whatever it may be, uh, no, no one can actually do any testing on that information unless they unwrap the whole thing. But here, what we want is to encrypt numbers in a way that they're testable. And in particular, we need Ethereum to say, we can know for absolutely, the Ethereum network, the, the, the miners, we know for absolutely sure that uh, the, the, the total amount of money that was in supply before the transaction happened and the total amount after the transaction happened is the same, even though everything is encrypted. Uh, and these Bonneboyan signatures, they're actually, they, they use a weird kind of number called an elliptic curve point. And what that is, is it's basically uh, similar to the number system we all know and love, but it's an encrypted version of that number system. Okay, so... How do you use that? If you can describe what, uh, why you build the Aztec protocol and what are the different use cases? Yeah, of course. So we we, we originally built um, a, a sequence of proofs uh, that for us were sufficient to make um, securities like bonds, equities, loans, etc. So so we have uh, the most basic thing that you can do on Aztec. Uh, is is the join split transaction, and we're taking that language, by the way, from Zcash. So they use the same concept of join split transaction. So inside Aztec, you actually have a you, you have um, more like it's a system of notes. Actually, I don't know whether you're you know how familiar you are with uh, uh, UTXO transactions, but it's it, you you very like with uh, with Bitcoin or with Zcash. You have this cluster of notes, a bit like kind of loose change, and uh, the join split is a way of taking some of the notes that you own, putting them into the transaction, those notes get burned, and then you create some output notes, which go to the various parties that you want them to go to. So let's, again, go back and say, I have a a $10 note. I want to create out of that a $7 note for you and a $3 note for me. And that's actually how I send you $7. So I'm starting with a note that's of a different balance. uh, But uh, I'm creating a a send transaction of $7 uh, by creating two output notes, $7 for you and $3 for me. Um, so that's the most basic thing you can do. Uh, you can also mint assets. Uh, you can burn assets. So that's creation of assets and redemption of assets. And you can even 
And I think this is one of the really exciting things about what Aztec can do right now is you can pay income. So you can even have zero knowledge loans uh, or zero knowledge uh, die or even uh, zero knowledge a die, let's say, which, which pays interest out to the owner. And even that interest can be paid privately uh, to the owner. And, and Ethereum is still able to say, well, I don't know how much of this asset that you've got, but the interest rate is, let's say, 7%, and you've got $100. And so we're going to pay you out $7. Now, all these numbers are encrypted, uh, but the Aztec protocol is able to allow Ethereum to check that everything is being correctly tested even though it's all encrypted. So, uh, so that's what, what Aztec does right now. So uh, you could use this for, let's say, salaries, for, for loans, uh, for ownership of equity. Um, it's almost, the number of use cases is, is almost indefinite. Right. And let's talk for a second about why is privacy important? Like, how do you think about that, Tom? Because some folks would say, well, the whole point about blockchain is that it's open and transparent. And you can see the transactions that happen on chain. How do you respond to that? Yeah, so I mean, I think the first thing to be said is what is actually important about blockchain is absolutely that it's open. But what we mean by open is all the logic going through the blockchain is testable. But that's different to saying that all of the data is visible. And I think that's a really, really important distinction. Um, so the re- I think it's actually you know, in, in, the, in the wake of the uh, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica scandals, um, I, I feel that the, the sell for why privacy is actually not just important, but an absolute prerequisite to doing our day-to-day business on blockchains is pretty evident, which is uh, we will go from a system whereby a small number of companies like banks and maybe even Google and Facebook can, can uh, work out our spending habits and from that reconstruct an enormous information about our lives um, and we now go to a system on a blockchain where it's not just they that can see these transactions, but everyone can see these transactions. And actually financial spending, you know, going, going to everything from buying a coffee to buying a train ticket, etc., tells any observer a huge amount of detail about your life and gives them a great deal of power over you. Um, so I think uh, having a, a veil, having a, a, a defense, a shield between the user and all observers of the blockchain is absolutely critical to us doing things which are going to be identifying about our lives. In other words, migrating our financial habits onto blockchains. So some of the concerns, right, of regulators are about compliance and also about making sure that, you know, you don't use that privacy to conduct illegal transactions right, or transactions that involve things that you shouldn't do. How do you prevent that? How do you make sure that on the one hand, you provide users with privacy for the reasons you just mentioned, but on the other hand, for instance, like people don't use these tools to fund terror or criminal activity? Yeah, so I mean, whether there's privacy or not on these systems, uh, one has to suspect that the, the, the regulators are going to start to say, well, uh, we're going to increase the threshold on people using uh, all kinds of, of financial services, whether they're Web3 or not, whether they're private or not, uh, by saying we as consumers may now be forced to KYC with other businesses that we're dealing with, which actually typically we've, we've never been accustomed to doing. So that might, be what, what, that might very well be 
um, uh, the result of uh, more peer-to-peer uh, spending systems and payment systems is regulators might respond in that fashion. Uh, but regulators will also have to concede that by not putting a privacy wrapper uh, around the transactions you're doing on a blockchain, or for a start, you're certainly breaking every GDPR uh, rule in the book, um, because uh, you as a DAP are now broadcasting everything about what your users are doing. Uh, so they're going to have to essentially sign away their rights um, to any kind of uh, basic levels of privacy at all uh, by using your platform. Um, so my view is that um, it rather like, you remember, you know, with the with the SSL certificate in, in the 90s, um, and the initial response from government was, oh, don't like these SSL certificates. If you're going to do something on the internet, you better make sure you don't have one. It wasn't very long before governments were turning around saying, actually, we've realized uh, the internet without without uh, proper protections for the user is a non-starter. You're going to need these things. In fact, we're going to recommend them. Um, and what we're now going to do is now use other mechanisms to try to reduce the degree to which the internet is used for bad purposes. So th- that's my response to that is it's, uh, it's just a non-starter to use uh, Web3 without privacy. Uh, and the government will then have to respond uh, in various ways, uh, one of which may be uh, asking uh, individuals uh, to to increase the levels of KYC that they're doing on people they trade with. And that, that's certainly possible, but that's independent of, 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 uh, of how Aztec is used, if that makes any sense. But doesn't that also depend on what you define as a private transaction? For instance... Let's say, you know, you're just making a transaction right now on Ethereum, the way it is structured now. It's still private to a certain degree, right? Like, I can see the transaction, I can see the amount. I can't tell that it is you, right? The government can probably do that if they want to because they can go to, you know, where you, your own app and, and basically ask for that KYC and then they can match the transaction with your identity. But as an individual, like, I would think it's pretty private even even the way it's structured right now do you know you would you would think it's private and and i think we we all live in this sort of um slight haze of uh, oh well there's pseudo anonymity and, and that's good enough there's there's no identity binding me to my address uh, and therefore there's there's privacy in there's privacy in numbers right um now actually th- that thesis oh, i actually don't even have to look very much further than uh than, than, than the, the the Aztec team itself to realize this is this is not true. So we had one situation where uh, it was actually um, Paul Berg who now runs uh, Sablier, um, uh, which is a, which is a great uh, streaming app for for, for salaries. Um, he was originally part of the Aztec team uh, earlier this year, and he sent some ether to one of his colleagues, uh, Tom. And Tom was immediately able to go online and see everything that Paul had done through his account. Now. Um, what I think that makes one realize is that we're not just protecting ourselves from uh, general snoopers of the network, uh, but every time we do a transaction with someone, we are exposing our entire transaction history as well. And Tom was able to accumulate a very uh, significant amount of knowledge about Paul, which Paul would prefer not to have not to have been visible, uh, simply by looking on, on Etherscan. Um, so actually, you begin to realize y- y- your counterparties build up a huge amount of information on you. Uh, also, by the way, statistical sampling... Um, and, and machine learning can do a huge amount to prize data that you don't think you're leaking uh, out of your transaction history. Um, so really, pseudonymity is it's not just imperfect, but at this point, it's, it's essentially not, a, not really an answer to privacy in, in any meaningful way. Hmm, interesting. 
Um, I, I guess he could have, you know, speaking about that example, like he could have just opened a new, you know, used a new address, right, to make that transaction. Some people I know just use a new address for every new transaction they make, right? And then if, even if you go to that address, like basically you don't see anything there other than that specific transaction. It's true, but of course, you then end up remitting funds from an address you've previously used, which would give a machine learning algorithm a pretty good idea that those two addresses are connected. And again, the timings and the way that that address is funded will indicate, well, this was a funding transaction, not a spend transaction. Um, and unless one is, uh, is prepared to do a great deal of work to really um, spread one's assets amongst a large number of addresses and to really work hard, and by the way, and therefore run up huge gas costs in doing so, um, that's not only a huge administrative hassle, uh, but also it's a very imperfect way of, of creating um, a sort of rough and ready uh, pseudo-anonymity for yourself. And how does Aztec work? What sort of information is visible on-chain and what do you hide? And also, is it customizable? Like, can the user decide what they want to hide and what not? Yeah, so at the moment, we strictly focus on confidentiality. Um, and by the way, that's imperfect too, right? So we, we, we have a roadmap uh, that is taking us from where we are today, which is, and I'll explain what I mean by confidentiality, because it's actually very important that I disambiguate the various, the, basically there are three principal types of privacy. Uh, we call it our triptych of privacy that we want to introduce to the network. And we've uh, so far implemented one out of three, right, which is confidential transactions. So confidential transactions means you can't see the balance that's being transferred, uh, but you can see the transaction graph. So if I were to send you some ZKDAI, uh, someone could look at the at the uh, at our uh, addresses. They could look at, look at the transaction, and they would know that you're the recipient, and they would know that I'm the sender, right? And and that's obviously clearly not an ideal situation at the moment. We want to get to a point where we're get, we're we're obscuring that as well. So that's what we mean by confidential transactions. Amounts are not visible. Uh, the next phase for the company uh, is to introduce user privacy, and what that means is. Anyone looking at the network now cannot see uh, that it was me sending the transaction that you were the recipient. So that's a big step forward because that means now uh, we're not leaking uh, the balances uh, and we're not leaking uh, who uh, the counterparties are. So that's already getting pretty good. Um, the next thing that we want to do is introduce what we call code privacy. And code privacy means the following if I send you some money with uh, Data privacy, in other words, confidential transactions, can't see the balance, and user privacy, in other words, no one can tell it's me sending and it's you receiving, uh, they can still tell that it's ZKDAI or ZKADAI or ZKCHAI. So what we want to do uh, is to create code privacy where you now don't even know which dark contract, which, which digital asset uh, a transaction is, uh, is appealing to. Right, so we don't even know which asset is being sent, and so that's the third part of of Aztec's roadmap, uh, and and that's that will be that will be coming after user privacy. Got it. So the way you described it is also the way that you plan to introduce these new features. That's right. It's very much one by one. And bear in mind, of course, we've also got because uh, when you do private transactions, you're talking about more 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 work uh, for the computer, right? So when the computer is preparing the transaction. Uh, it's now having to prepare more logic, do more mathematics, uh, and that, and it also means that there's more cost for Ethereum to verify. So we've also got some some scaling work to undertake here 
uh, as well. So um, it's a it's a really big and really ambitious roadmap uh, that we have ahead of us uh, this year. Um, just very quickly to pick to pick on your point about uh, customizability. Um, the point about Aztec right now is yes, okay, we've released ZK Die, and that ZK Die only has um, it so it has balances that are that are obscured, uh, but you can see the transaction graph. Um, but uh, that's only one way to use the Aztec protocol. You can also use the Aztec protocol by just building your own assets, right? So you might be building uh, ZK loans or or something else. In which case, you can take the little bits of our proof, the proofs. They're they're like kind of Lego blocks. You can take the interest proof uh, to pay interest, and you can you can pick the uh, the burn proof so that the, the so the asset can be redeemed, and you can build the the swap proof so that uh, the asset can be swapped uh, in in the markets. And you can take each of these things and stitch them together to make your own custom assets. Um, so, so that's how you could use uh, Aztec in a more sophisticated way than just wrapping dye or wrapping chai or something else. I see. And uh, where are you now in terms of the product lifecycle, Tom? I know in early February you launched on Mainnet. Can you talk about where you are, you know, usage-wise and... Uh terms of the adoption you see so far? Absolutely. So yes, we, you're right. We, we launched actually on the 31st of January. We didn't, uh, it wasn't deliberate that we were launching on Brexit day, but, uh, but, but <laughs> uh, so the, the, uh, some union jacks were sailing past uh, outside <laughs> the office whilst we were huddled together uh, trying to deploy to mainnet. Um, you were trying to make Brexit private. Uh, exactly, <laughs> something like that. Did, did, did you hear about Brexit? Uh, yes. No. Did anyone speak about that? So uh, I'm sorry. You were asking about the, the the roadmap going forward. Yeah, I was asking more about if you can talk about the product lifecycle. So you launched on Mainnet on the end of uh, January, and what's been the feedback so far? If you can talk a bit about adoption and use cases, I'd love to just hear more about how is it going so far. Yeah, so I mean, the health warning here is obviously we've only been underway two and a half weeks, and we do have a product, by the way. So aside from just the protocol, uh, we have a privacy SDK, uh, and that's really targeted at, at DApps. So if, if you want to put privacy into your, if you want to put confidential transactions into your into your DApp, uh, you can uh, take our um, our privacy SDK, uh, and it makes a few things just very easy for you. So uh, everything from the cryptography uh, to storing these, these these ZK notes, these private notes, uh, and managing them and working out how to, to spend them and how to denominate them, etc. Um, all that is kind of removed from the developer through this SDK. So so that's the really the product uh, that we're offering, uh, along also, by the way, with a, um, a thing we're call, calling the, the Zero G program. Uh, and that is we're offering uh, fully funded transactions, so uh, the developers will, or the or their users uh, will not uh, incur a gas cost for private transactions in the next few months of the company's life. Um, and so that's just to make sure that uh, there is there is nothing to inhibit uh, uh, adoption of, of the network. How do you do that? So that means they're not going to pay any ETH gas fees. That's right. Uh, so so this is coming this is coming out of our our funding that, that we have raised. Got it. So you're subsidizing it, basically. That's right. I mean, we're we're doing this via application. So so the idea is that a company comes to us and says, "Look, this is our. We'll tell you a little bit about you know our use base, our, our adoption, who's using us, etc." And then we will appraise that and say, "Okay, we would like to uh, give you an API key that gives you access to, let's say, 500 transactions or a thousand transactions a month, uh, whatever it may be." Um, 
So, so yeah, so that's the that's how um, we're 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 trying to um, stimulate uh, adoption of the network uh, so far. Uh, adoption has been fantastic. We've had uh, inquiries from uh, everyone from uh, pretty well known uh, applications, uh, DApps, right the way through to uh, custody solutions to uh, even big enterprise. So um, uh, we're in the early days of all these discussions, by the way, and I think it would probably be. Uh, a little um, careless of me to, to talk about uh, names and early users at the moment because we are only two and a half weeks old uh, on mainnet. So, um, so I think I'll have to come back and uh, update you at a later date on uh, on 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 the first implementers. <laughs> That's fair enough. And uh, is there out of the use cases you described earlier? Just curious if there's a specific vertical or use case that you're focused on. Yeah, so I mean, we try to make sure that anyone wanting to use Aztec, we, we really have abstracted the, this privacy as much as we humanly can. Um, but you know, personally, the things that I'm pretty excited about, first of all, I think are, are um, streaming uh, income. And uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, sadly, but there, there are other companies doing this as well. I think that's, a, that's, that's very clearly an identifying transaction uh, where uh, it's very hot. You, know, you really can't uh, stream money uh, through the banking system today, you have to do it in discrete packets, usually on a monthly basis. Um, and so that's a very obvious uh, use case for Ethereum, but also something that, uh, because of its nature, obviously requires privacy around it. So that's uh, a pretty interesting first use case. Um, loans, I think, another very interesting use case. Again, they they will inevitably identify uh, something about the user. So I think I think payment of interest and, and loans is is also pretty interesting. Um, and by the way, just peer-to-peer payments. Um, you know, one great thing about Ethereum is we have a free-to-wear, virtually free-to-wear, uh, escrow service associated with Ethereum. So if I want to pay pay you some money and we want to appoint some third party to say, uh, yes, Tom has, uh, has provided uh, Tom with the services or he hasn't, um, and yes, no, the payment should go, uh, that feels like a very obvious first use uh, of, of a private payment system on Ethereum. Interesting. How do you differentiate um, Aztec from other privacy protocols out there? You mentioned Zcash earlier, Monero, and the many other privacy protocols that uh, are live as well. Curious how you're thinking about that. The main distinct- distinction is, is, is what can be made uh, private in Aztec. So we, 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 there's no notion of, a, of an Aztec coin. Um, so you might um, create assets that are denominated or dollar denominated or uh, even wrapped Bitcoin uh, denominated or wrapped ETH uh, denominated uh, could be anything. Um, so th- that's the principle, I think, that differentiates uh, Aztec. Um, On that point, why isn't there an Aztec coin? Like, why did you decide to not issue a token and build on top of Ethereum? Okay, so there are, there are a few reasons for that. Um the, the first one really, uh, the, the main one is, 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 is it's a regulatory thing. So um, if I think the, the main impulse to issue a coin should be, well, we would like the community to have ownership uh, in the network. And by the way, long term, there is no question that's, that's got to be the ambition for the company. So, so that's without question. But then the question is, you know, how do you then get uh, an economic turn to the holders of the token? And that's where I think there's, there's quite a lot of uh, controversy here. Because uh, in order to comply with regulation, generally the ins- the, what you're kind of forced to do by the regulators uh, is not to attach uh, 
let's say, profit or revenue to this coin, because the risk is that if you do, they say, sorry, you've broken public securities law. And so then you're forced to revisit the token and say, well, okay, we're going to have to pull out all the economics from this coin. Uh, we can't actually give uh, good economic returns to the holders. And I wouldn't feel comfortable with doing that. And then, of course, a lot of projects shift and they say, okay, well, you've got to use the coin to, to spend in the network. Now, there I would have a real worry because I think the one thing that uh, Web3 companies really need to avoid doing at the moment is introducing frictions that are unnecessary. You know, we already have gas costs to contend with. Uh, we have bottlenecks in, in how many transactions you can get through a public blockchain at any one time. That's enough of a problem, enough of a friction uh, without introducing a coin that, in my view, will just increase the round-trip cost of using the protocol. So it's an efficiency reason uh, in that particular case. Uh, so that's why we haven't yet uh, issued a token. I mean, I have no doubt, and we wouldn't be building this company if we didn't think that in the long run, the ownership of the company, the protocol, uh, will be uh, owned and traded principally on Web3 networks. And we would be crazy to be building this company if we didn't believe that. Uh, it's just that the, the, the regulators, uh, I feel, haven't yet caught up, and therefore, uh, and we don't want to risk uh, making the, the the platform less efficient than it optimally can be, and that's the, that's the reason uh, there's no token just yet. I see. And I cut you off earlier. Sorry, you started talking about how you're thinking about differentiating Aztec from the other privacy networks out there. So no coin is one differentiator. Mm -hmm. Are there any other aspects? So programmable privacy is where we are aiming. So um, what we want, you know, uh, I should say that, you know, take, for example, uh, Zcash. Uh, Zcash runs on, um, you may be familiar with the concept of a ZK snark. Uh, and uh, Zcash runs on that. Now, it's the kind of ZK snark that Zcash runs on means that um, you have one trusted setup uh, and it can only ever run uh, one type of transaction. Right, uh, and if you wanted to modify the transaction, if you wanted something other, for example, than spending uh, Zcash, uh, you would need to do the setup all over again. And Aztec is actually firmly positioning itself towards uh, the notion of a universal snark. And there's a very obvious reason we need to do that because we don't just want to be able to serve one private asset; we want to be able to serve any number of private assets that users want to integrate. As I say, one of them is ZK Dai. Uh, one of them might be. Uh, let's say it's okay, ADI, where there's an interest payment. So we need more complexity in the privacy there because we need to be able to pay out interest on these on these assets. Um, and so we're focused now on universal SNARKs. And the great thing about a universal SNARK is you have one setup, one trusted setup, and that can serve it to, with, with some health warnings, but can serve any number of uh, private smart contracts. So we want to be the programmable privacy layer uh, for Ethereum, and that's how we're positioning ourselves. So that's really our main distinction between us and Zcash or Monero. I see. And why did you decide to build on top of Ethereum? Obviously, there are other smart contract platforms out there. Curious what drove you to build on top of ETH? I, mean, I think there are two reasons. First of all, I mean, ETH, ETH, Ethereum just has the the network effect. Um, it also has, of course, um, the, the longest burn-in of all the programmable platforms out there. It has the, the longest burn-in. Um, and it's got a very high quality uh, community uh, around it. And it, the, the, I'm afraid it really is as simple as that. You know, I mean, my goodness, the, the number of times I've heard uh, my colleague uh, Zach complain about the uh, 
um, the, the minutiae of the Ethereum virtual machine, you know that there are all sorts of problems uh, uh, that are associated with Ethereum. Uh, but ultimately, our view is that's still where the, the, the bulk of, of, of quality uh, developers um, are, are congregating around. And so really, we feel that's the most promising uh, first market for our, for our privacy network. Um, we are very happy to, uh, in, in due course, look at, look at other uh, blockchains uh, in time. And we certainly want to be, you know, um, in the long term, blockchain agnostic. But Ethereum feels like the, the, the most promising uh, home for us at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. It's the clear leader at this point, right? A lot of entrepreneurs look at Ethereum and they try to compare the tech to some of the other smart contract platforms out there. But in many ways, in my mind, they're missing the key point. And the key point is, even there's a, you know another protocol that maybe has higher throughput or let's say you know better privacy at this point, like the Ethereum ecosystem by far is the leader, right? I mean, you just have like thousands, if not tens of thousands of developers working, you know, building products on it on a daily basis. And that's just such a huge advantage compared to any other, you know, smart contract network out there that, yeah, it's just, can it be bridged? Yes. Is it likely to happen? Probably not in my mind. This is it. I mean, I totally agree. The, the network effect, the reputation is there. And, you know, I mean, you as an investor, you, you, I'm sure you're always thinking about you know, the power of the network effect. And, and Ethereum has enormous f- first mover advantage, as well as, by the way, having a very, very, very high quality um, maintenance team around it. Um, uh, so, so yeah, it, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, because it's that network effect, right? When you think about blockchain, it's and when you think about like open source code, I mean, you know, you have that composability, right? You can build on top of it, mm. and so when the ecosystem is so strong, and more and more projects emerge every day that are building on top of Ethereum, you can just use that code, right, and make your own modifications or build your own version of whatever it is that you're pursuing. But it's just so powerful. I mean, I feel like the network effects in this case are oftentimes even stronger than traditional tech. Absolutely. And, and, and what I would say, by the way, uh, revisiting your the scaling point you briefly touched on, on earlier, is you know, I, I'm pretty bullish about uh, the prospects for cryptographic scaling through you know, things like Rollup, um, which, by the way, weirdly, uh, use a lot of the same proofs, uh, z- these zero-knowledge proofs, these SNARKs, uh, that I was talking about in the context of privacy early, earlier. Um, but that word S in SNARK, meaning succinct, also uh, holds a huge amount of promise for scalability. So the ability to roll up thousands of transactions into one uh, small piece of aggregated data. And it's that small piece of data that goes to mainnet, uh, not the original transaction. And so you might very well find that, yes, the the Ethereum um, uh, team is making fantastic strides um, in the production of of ETH 2.0, but you may very well find that a lot of the scaling that happens is actually not necessarily just being implemented by the, the builders of the infrastructure. It may also be provided by companies like, like Aztec and, and others um, who are able to achieve cryptographic scaling um, by condensing down an enormous number of transactions into one very small transaction. Right. That's a really great point. You know, for folks who say like, hey, Ethereum isn't private. Well, guess what? Now, if you have Aztec, you're introducing privacy into Ethereum, 
And so other entrepreneurs and teams can build on top of that. So just the network effects are really powerful. I know. I, I was just going to say. I was. I was asked this a lot actually um, during one of our fundraising rounds. Was um, is is privacy actually a is is it a is it a feature rather than a product? And uh, we always argued back against that and said, look, actually, what Ethereum has got to do is to provide consistency in what its virtual machine does in in the in in the computations that it does. It's got to offer all of the little basic mathematical operations, which you can then use as a smart contract developer to build bigger things. Um, but the great thing about Ethereum not having privacy at the infrastructure level is that, you know, for the moment, let's say we're, we're on this particular uh, mathematical system called, called elliptic curves. But in the future, we might be using class groups or we might be using some completely different type of maths. And we can still go and build that maths out of the small building blocks which Ethereum describes in its virtual machine. And so Ethereum in that period has never had to change the types of mathematics that it supports. So it hasn't had to take on the security risks of making big alterations to its code base. And instead, uh, companies building on it are able to, to, to alter uh, the types of maths that they're implementing instead. So that's a really big benefit to Ethereum of just saying, we're going to build a little, a sort of a, a computer, a distributed computer that can compute anything. And then you go and compute what you want to compute out of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the beauty of that flexibility at the layer one level, right? Exactly. And how do you encourage more teams to build on top of ASDEC? Like, how, how do you get the word out? So we're doing a number of things. I mean, I, I think, I mean, if you look at our spend for the year, um, we're pretty focused on on hackathons. Um, so uh, I, we felt for, for some while that we have always got the best return on, on, on our marketing efforts uh, by targeting hackathons. And so we're appearing at at least five or six hackathons around the world uh, this year. Uh, obviously, you know, the, the, the easy answer to this question, of course, includes Twitter and Telegram and, uh, and, and all those other uh, delivery mechanisms for, for information, which are very important. Um, but but uh, turning up at hackathons is, is probably the most important thing uh, that we can do. Um, also, of course, constant iterations to our privacy SDK and just making it easier and easier. We've already had, by the way, three iterations just in the run-up to launch. Uh, just small things like you know reducing the number of clicks that the user has to make. I mean they're basic things, uh, but improving usability. Um, I, making sure that our docs are you know really state of the art. We've got some you know, beautiful docs which uh, allow the code actually to be run uh, as the as the developer is reading our documentation. Um, those are really the the principal tools that we have to to, to encourage uh, adoption. Um, Without any question, adoption is going to come first from people doing uh, implementing on Ethereum day-to-day -day transactions, things like uh, money changing hands, uh, things like escrow services, um, loan issuance, all those uh, types of dApps are very likely to be our, our first adopters. Yeah. What about Bitcoin, Tom? Yeah, so you actually can't do that yet, but it is in our very immediate roadmap to include uh, a form of wrapped Bitcoin inside our network. Um, and so, yes, you, you can do that. I mean, of course, you're, you're transacting Bitcoin sort of on a secondary network still. Uh, but yes, you can economically 
you will be able to economically uh, transact Bitcoin privately uh, on the Aztec network uh, fairly shortly. We haven't announced a date for the release of that, but it'll come pretty pretty soon. And are you going to create your own version of wrapped Bitcoin on, on top of Ethereum, or are you going to use something that's already in existence? We, we always tend to put a wrapper on an ERC-20 token. So um, you know, what we would love is for um, people to say, well, okay, uh, you've got this wrapped Bitcoin, but actually we can see how much collateral is in there. We can see there's 400 Bitcoin or whatever inside uh, this zero knowledge pool. Uh, so what we're actually going to do is create a, a, a an asset that is zero knowledge from its first creation. Now, there are all kinds of then problems about still checking is the Bitcoin there to substantiate the 100 ZK Bitcoin that's on, on Ethereum? And that's going to be another question. It's going to, that's a question for a DAP developer. Um, but uh, we will have various um, uh, kind of canonical pools of ZK wrapped Bitcoin, uh, ZK wrapped ETH, uh, ZK DAI, and all of the, the major tokens uh, that trade on Ethereum. Got it. So thinking beyond Aztec, Tom, are there any specific projects or developments in the crypto space you're especially excited about? I mean, I've always been uh, a really big fan of 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 MakerDAO, um, and look, it's it's. I mean, it's still in its infancy. It's it's a it's a really. Um, I mean, it's in the nicest way, but 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 it's it's a kind of you know it's a crude uh, um, a version of the banking system, right? You see, you, uh, but but it works in. In quite a different way, and it's protected very nicely from from um, banking runs in a way the banking system isn't, because that die token uh, can never be redeemed by the holder unless they also happen to be a borrower from the system, and that's actually a very nice feature of of, of die. It's it can, brings its difficulties as well because I think it makes the peg much harder. Um, but I love uh, what MakerDAO uh, has done. Uh, here, which you know, I think in time they're looking obviously to introduce more kind of quote unquote real world assets as as part of the collateral base, and their 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 recent um, their, their recent uh, protocol upgrade obviously is making that going to make that uh, rather easier. Um, but I'm a big fan of, of, of MakerDAO. I, it's what I would call a, a tier one uh, lending system, um, and I think it's it's you know it's a very interesting question over time. Will it have to at some point to to maintain the the, the die peg is it at some point it going to have to do open market operations with the fed or you know how is it going to make, maintain that peg over time but i think it's a it's a very elegant uh system for for providing stable coins on ethereum and uh, yeah, i'm a big fan of that project yeah same here i actually had the uh, rune christensen the ceo of MakerDAO, on the show a few months back and uh, it was a fascinating discussion Yes, they're very early to your point, but I think when you think about the potential applications of Maker and the move that they made recently to multi-collateral die, it's really exciting. It is. It's it's just a beautifully elegant uh, solution to the problem. I I have no doubt that you know it will evolve over time. I mean, you know, they may want to, for example, be able to have you know different levels of. Uh, of LTVs for, for, for various assets, and um, and and I don't know whether Dai will ever be callable by by an owner of Dai who is not a borrower who hasn't opened a CDP. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm watching that one with a with a lot of interest. I think it's uh, it's a very very clever very clever system. Yeah, what's your take? Thinking also about the initial focus that you had for the company which you've pivoted from what's your take on stos 
you know, it's, I feel like what, like a year ago, it was all the rage, right? Everybody were, you know, in the space was talking about security tokens and how we're going to digitize all these different real world assets. I think it seems to have cooled off a bit, hasn't really materialized yet. Why is that in your mind? I mean, I think, you know, the principal reason, uh, amongst others, has got to be, you know, the banks hold all the cards and banks make decisions typically very slowly. And one can understand why, you know, the old phrase, uh, you know, no CTO of a bank ever got fired for, for picking IBM. And uh, you know, Ethereum is fantastic, but it's not yet uh, IBM. It's not yet uh, sort of, you know, it, it would be a, a big risk for any bank to say, we're going to migrate all of our trading systems uh, onto this, this Web3 platform. And I think that's one of the major reasons. I mean, look, I, whether the banks have realized and whether the financial services industry more broadly has realized that it's basically got a free-to-air clearinghouse. It's got a mechanism for clearing trades and no balance sheet needs to stand in the way. Now, that could be a bad news story for a bank. And that may mean that banks are, you know, they're not going to be that keen to transfer their, their transactions to these services because ultimately it removes one of the main reasons that they're in the system in the first place. Um, but I, I suspect that's the that's the main reason that the virtues um, of building STOs on Ethereum are, I, I think, are just completely sound. And the more uh, assets trade, the more benefits users are going to get uh, by being able to trade with one another and have no risk. There's no risk the other side will fail to settle uh, because they, they can always use an atomic swap. Um, but I, I, that's my that's my my tuppence. I think I think that's the principal reason. I think the other reason, by the way, is obviously there's been a lot of talk about private blockchains. And if you go to um, to finances in a bank and you say, oh, don't worry, this is a private blockchain, they suddenly feel they feel safe. They feel the word private makes them feel better. But actually, of course, what they don't realize is for that blockchain to be of any use to them, uh, if they're, let's say, Credit Suisse, and if Goldman Sachs is on the same platform, then without any privacy on that private blockchain, Goldman can see all of Credit Suisse's trades, and Credit Suisse can see all of Goldman's trades. So it's private, yes, but it's not it's not private from the people that they want it to be private from. So I think just there's a lot of confusion about the differences between public and private blockchains and how much privacy a private blockchain actually gives you. Um, and I think that has also probably slowed down the appetite um, uh, for people, um, for financiers looking to issue capital through STOs. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really good point. When I hear the, you know, private blockchains, my immediate reaction is, well, at that point, why have a blockchain to begin with? I mean, if it's private and you just have a limited number of nodes, you know, maybe it's better to just use a normal database. The advantages of using something like Ethereum or Bitcoin is that it's decentralized, right? And you have that power of decentralization and many, many nodes being spread across different geographies. If you waive that, I think it's hard to make a case for using a blockchain. You're right. I mean, you lose, of course, the immutability benefits, or at least you, move, you, you lose the guarantees. But I mean, private blockchains actually have, they have pretty good immutability guarantees. I think actually, for me, the big problem of the private blockchain is, you know, let's suppose I've got an asset sitting on this private blockchain, and then I want to go and trade it with someone who I suddenly discover hasn't signed a license for use of that private blockchain. They, you know, they haven't, they haven't got an agreement with whoever's running it. So I need to get them signed up before I can even trade with them. So that for me is one of the really big, you know, the, the, the decentralization benefit here is actually 
if I'm on Ethereum, you're already essentially signed up. You can go and just check uh, Etherscan or you can go and run a node yourself and you can verify the correctness of the ledger and the amount that's been worked, the, the work that's been done on it. And to me, that's the great benefit is, is uh, there's, there's no prohibition on who can trade on, on, on an open network. Uh, and if you want privacy, well, I would say come to Aztec uh, because at the end of the day, if you're on a private blockchain, but gold, you've got your major competitors are on that private blockchain as well, you're still going to need a privacy wrapper. In other words, it's not actually more private in a way that benefits you anyway. Um, but of course, there are, there are the main benefit of a private blockchain is really just throughput. You know, you can get far more transactions through these things at the moment. And so, of course, public chains still have to prove their worth in terms of throughput. Yeah, it's all about these trade-offs that you just described, agreed. Curious, Tom, you know, this is the Blockchain VC podcast. There's a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs listening to the podcast. You've been successful in raising capital. Are there any specific best practices or tips that you can share with our listeners about the fundraising process that you found helpful? Sure. Um, so there are few things I'd say uh, about raising money. The first is, um, I think it's important to uh, avoid uh, the temptation to um, think about investors as uh, purely an opportunity to inject money uh, into the company. And that's a, it's a trite and easy thing to say. But um, looking back, I mean, I, we've raised, as you say, around about $4 million. And uh, we have, for example, one investor uh, who gave us aside from the money, um, a lot of visibility and uh, clout that we didn't uh, already have. They were able to provide you know, marketing around the business, et cetera, uh, and, and also some, some, some early auditing as well. Um, we had another investor, uh, for example, who, who checks in um, every couple of weeks minimum, uh, and they've helped us to um, certainly improve our product focus a lot, particularly on the Privacy SDK, which is this piece of software uh, that we offer uh, to developers um, to enable them to integrate privacy into their dApps. Um, and they've had a huge influence on, on how that product has changed. Um, so in retrospect, that was a much more valuable investment than, than just the cash, which of course is very important. Uh, and then we've got another investor actually who operates incredibly quietly, um, but they are boots on the ground at every single event, which means that if something happens in the industry uh, that is going to in some way affect us, uh, we get that feedback really quickly. So um, we then have some other very important strategic investors as well. So that's the first thing I would say is uh, make sure you're, you're uh, targeting investors, not just who are going to be most interested in you. For example, for us, it would be cybersecurity, privacy, uh, crypto, um, but also uh, where you think that they can offer something over and above uh, just the money. Um, the second is really a kind of a practical uh, point, which is do as much as you can. When you when you start fundraising, pick a, a, a start date for the sprint uh, and then pick some date two to three months ahead of time and say, look, this is when we're aiming to get bids in. Now, you're running a little bit of risk, of course, but uh, if you play your cards right, two to three months, certainly for a seed stage company, should be about right uh, to expect um, bids to come in. Why do you think that's important to put in place? I think a um, couple of reasons. First of all, there are some investors who will just move very, very fast, and you've got to say to them, "Look, you know, I've, I've, I'm wanting to go out to the to to, to everyone. 
uh, and and uh, who who I believe is is relevant to the company, uh, and give them the time to come back as well. So you don't want uh, some people coming in, you know, within three days, and then some people coming in uh, who, who literally can't get to a decision within, you know, let's say four weeks, which is which is perfectly normal. Um, and it just helps also for those investors whose uh, timelines might tend to be a bit longer. It helps them to make sure that that they can get in, you know, particularly if they're, if they're a larger fund and let's say they have, you know, uh, an investment committee to go through and various other due diligence processes before, you've got to give them that, that additional time uh, to make those decisions. Otherwise, you, you cut them out of the round entirely. Um, so I think setting that expectation is, 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 is quite, quite important. Um, the third thing is, uh, and it's really only relevant to crypto startups, um, but there are a lot of benefits to, in the early days, um, just raising equity rounds. Uh, a few reasons for that. First of all, it keeps your cap table quite clean um, from the perspective of more traditional investors um, or investors who may only just be getting into the blockchain space. Um, I think it's still there's still a lot of head scratching going on by, uh, by the council at uh, VC funds um, who still don't entirely know the, the, the implications of tokens. Um, there's also a, just a very pragmatic uh, economic reason uh, why you might not want to, want to issue a token at this stage, and um, and that is that uh, you may, uh, unless you found you know a brilliant way to distribute great economics legally to your investors, um, and uh, as long as you're quite sure um, that uh, this token isn't going to create artificial frictions in your network, and I'm happy to go into that in a bit more detail. Um, then by all means issue a token, but until you've got to that point, uh, I think those are those are sufficient concerns, regulatory, economic uh, concerns, um, and and competitive concerns. In other words, making sure your network is more efficient than any other competitors um, by virtue of the fact that you don't have a token. Those are great reasons to maybe stick with equity uh, in the early days uh, until you are really confident uh, that you found uh, an excellent way to deliver economics through a token. Yeah, these are some really great points, I think. Um, definitely, if you're lucky enough to be in a position where you can choose your investors, finding someone and optimizing for investors who can add value is hugely valuable. They can support you throughout, hopefully throughout the entire journey. And if they're good, they can provide you with some great insights and networking opportunities and just provide great feedback. On the token piece, I agree, right? It adds a bit of, or quite a bit of friction. And you have to have a good reason why you want to do that as an entrepreneur. Is there a strong enough reason to now also issue a native token, which is going to make the whole process just much more complicated, right? Like how do you monetize, what the token economics are like, and so forth. Definitely equity is a proven model that's been used for decades now most investors feel pretty comfortable with it. So you don't have to educate them about like token economics, how it works and so forth. I think that's right. And I, I think, you know, the, the, the kind of the unanswered questions on the tokens, I mean, but as you know, as I said earlier, you know, um, I would certainly expect ownership on our network at some stage to be owned and traded on, on Web3, i.e. in some sort of token form. That's, that's the clear end goal. Um, but, you know, for the moment, I mean, we ended up, obviously, we had the, the kind of the skirmish with the, the utility token. Um, 
and it had that very weird property whereby as as Ethereum or whatever infrastructure it was built on became more efficient, uh, actually the value of that token would would go down for every improvement in finality times on the network, right? Because the, the amount of, of time that the utility token was being held uh, was going to get shorter and shorter and shorter. So it's going to speed up the velocity and apply downward pressure to, to the token. So, so that had some kind of some, some weird properties like that. Aside from the fact also, by the way, that uh, to interact with the network, you had to kind of, if I wanted to buy a service on the network, I'd have to go and buy the token from the market. I'd have to send it to you and then you'd sell it and there'd be a round trip spread. Um, and then, of course, with you know, staking networks, there's also, I guess, this slight concern where um, if a token's very volatile, then anyone kind of staking into the network is going to ask for a, a premium. They're going to say, look, my, my return on my staked capital, because it's denominated in this quite volatile asset, I'm going to ask for a volatility premium. And so what you're doing is kind of introducing another layer of, of fees, another layer of cost to the users of your network. So, so that's kind of a thing that, that, that uh, I think is, is not yet fully uh, worked out um, in, in token models um, uh, just yet. And then, of course, yes, exactly. There's, the, there's, there's also the, the, you've got the regulatory piece um, uh, to worry about. And, and almost the more economics you give away to, to the owners of these tokens, the more you're, um, you know, you may get into kind of regulatory waters that could be really complicated and, of course, quite costly to you as a business as well. So you may then end up spending a whole lot of money you, you wanted to spend on the tech and instead spending it on legal fees, which you'd, you'd probably in, in the short term prefer to avoid. Right. And last question, Tom. You're based in, uh, in the UK. How did you find, or how do you find, the blockchain ecosystem and also the funding environment there compared to, I guess, your counterparts in the US? So, I mean, I think there's, there's no question that in terms of um, investor appetite, I mean, you know, uh, SF investor appetite is just, uh, it it's, has always been and I think remains um, uh, considerably higher. I mean, the UK has some pretty good uh, tax benefits uh, available um, for for uh, investment at the very early stages of a company, but it's got to come from uh, UK angels and you know, complications around that. Um, but you know, it, it does seem at this point probable that one would go and do um, a, a Series A um, in SF rather rather than in London. But I don't think that's a I don't think that's a problem for London or Berlin or whatever based companies. I think um, I think these these investors actually realise that often they're getting uh, financially. They, they feel that they're getting a better deal than often some overpriced deals in, in SF. And so they're you know, increasingly seeing SF investors coming over to Europe and spending a lot of time in Europe for exactly that reason, amongst other jurisdictions. Uh, Europe is a, is, is a major uh, target for them now. So that's great. Um, as far as the blockchain scene in London, I, I have to say, I was, two years ago, if you'd asked me that question, I'd be very worried uh, because I thought things were relatively quiet versus Berlin. Uh, now the situation has changed monumentally. Um, and uh, in particular, I, I don't think this is the only driver of this, but I think the amount of cryptographic research that has come out of uh, London, and in particular, I have to say UCL. I mean, you know, Jens Groth, the creator of the Groth 16 circuit that runs Zcash, he was a, uh, until he moved to Definity, he was a professor at, at UCL. Uh, you've got um, a host of cryptographers he trained, um, one of whom, Mary Maller, who created Sonic, is working in our office. Uh, you've got Zach, who's interacted a lot with um, with uh, with Jens, 
Um, there are there is a huge amount of cryptographic research. I'd say it's one of the really important centers now for for, for cryptography, for zero knowledge cryptography. Uh, Sarah Micklejohn is another. I mean, it's 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 an almost endless list. Um, so I think things have improved a huge amount in London, uh, which is fantastic. Um, hopefully, uh, Brexit will allow will uh, still allow that to continue. Um, but I think we've we've caught up a lot of the deficit to, to Berlin now, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's definitely great to see London playing such an important role in the blockchain ecosystem. And uh, yeah, UCL, for folks who are not familiar with Wright University College London, is definitely uh, playing an important role as well. Tom, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed the discussion and appreciate you taking the time to share your insights. Thanks a lot, Tom. Likewise. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of The Blockchain VC, and want to help bring more awareness to the space. I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out.